Okay, good morning, everybody. How was your week? Hopefully uneventful-ish. Well, let's start out by a word of prayer, shall we? Lord Jesus, we just want to thank you again, as always, that you allow us to come together and we can study your word and learn and fellowship. Uh, We just ask now as we go over all these difficult topics, Lord, that you would give us, um, first and foremost, just the loving grace as we go about and we uh, deal with folks that may or uh, be caught up in these things. Um, Help us to understand and just guide us in those conversations that we have. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You guys can hear me okay, right? Be up a bit? Okay, hold on one sec. Let me turn that off so I don't... Did that even do anything? Eh? A little bit? So-so? Well, one of these days we're threatening about actually getting, you know, speakers and off of the ceiling and whatnot, so it would reverberate down instead of out, so which would make, of course, a lot more sense. Okay, so welcome to our second week of uh, Colts. Yes, second week of Colts. So what are we going over today? Well, we're going over progressive Christianity. Has anyone heard that term? Yes? Okay. So the first conversation to have when we're dealing with these things is, well, how can we even have this discussion? Have you guys heard um, any of those objections? What about you're not supposed to judge? It's unloving to call someone out. God is love. We're called to love and not to judge. Has anyone encountered that before? Okay. I would hope so. You encounter that a lot. Well, so let's start out with this, because this week's more of an introduction into progressive Christianity, so you guys can understand what it's about. Next week, we're going to be dealing with specific proponents of progressive Christianity, um, kind of famous people in today's culture that are, what's that? You're going to name names. Yep. Thank you. Yep. So... As far as naming names, do we have, I mean, is that an anti-biblical thing to do? Well, I want to turn your attention to 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 9. Let's see what Paul ends up saying here. He says, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Call that one person. Cretans has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for the ministry. Tychicus I've sent to Ephesus, and when you come, bring the cloak that I left at Carpus at Troas, and also the books, and above all the parchments. Now here's where it gets interesting. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message." Now, Paul specifically calls out this guy by name, naming what he had done. Ish. (laughs) Be careful, Mrs. Kirk. So, is it wrong to call out someone that is preaching another gospel? No, it's not. Certainly not according to Paul. How about in, also Paul, Romans chapter 16, starting in verse 7. 
I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Now we'll go to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And here's the final kicker. Ephesians 5:11. Take what's that, babe? Yeah, it'll always have static at this level. It will. Ephesians 5:11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. It's kind of plain as day. Whenever we encounter those that are preaching a vastly different gospel than what is revealed in the scriptures, we avoid them and we also expose them for those that can learn. But that presupposes one thing. We have to know the gospel, right? So we have to be uh, Bereans. We have to be students of the scriptures in order to even know when these things are happening. So that's our first challenge. So what is progressive Christianity? I'm going to give you five signs that will indicate uh, a teacher or a church is in this progressive Christianity movement. There is a very lowered view of the Bible, sign number one when it comes to them. One of the main differences between progressive Christianity and historic Christianity is its view of Scripture. Historically, Christians have viewed the Bible as the Word of God and absolutely authoritative for our lives. Progressive Christianity, however, generally abandons these terms and they emphasize personal belief over biblical mandate. So these are some of the things you might hear, some types of comments coming from progressive Christians. The Bible is a human book. No, it's not, right? Um, What do I mean by that? Well, historical Christianity teaches something called plenary verbal inspiration. What does that mean? Yes, take the synoptic gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we we see that there are different um, vantage points of the same story, right? So when we say plenary verbal inspiration, we're not saying that the Bible was like uh, Moses with the Ten Commandments, that it was just being written by the finger of God. We're saying that God, for a better uh, term, kind of possessed the writers, right, by the Spirit of God, and the, the writers have their own personality still in it, but it is still the authoritative Word of God. It's not um, as if the, the writers are just writing what they think their experience of God is and then hope for the best. Does that make sense to clarify? Okay, and this becomes a very big point because we have to have one authority in our lives. And guess what? It can't be us. It's going to be wrong all the time if it is us. Um, you, you'll hear other statements from progressive Christians. I disagree with the Apostle Paul on that issue. You guys ever heard anything like that? How can you? How can you disagree with the literal word of God? How many times in Paul's letters does he say, not I, but the Lord says, when he's recording something? A significant portion. This one, the Bible condones immorality, so we are obligated to reject what it says in certain places. That's convenient. Just because the Bible records immoral acts does not mean it condones it. Did the scriptures condone Abraham disobeying God and taking Hagar. No, it did not condone him in doing that, but it records him doing so. Did it condone Moses committing murder? No. 
But we have these recollections in Scripture so that we may know the history that we're reading is accurate. My favorite coming from them, the Bible contains the Word of God. Not is, but contains. Again, that's rather convenient. So who is the ultimate judge of what is and is not the Word of God? Well, that would leave it to the interpreter, right? It's a very dangerous proposition. I don't think you would find one public voice for a progressive Christianity that would say that the Bible is absolutely authoritative. I haven't heard that come out of any of their mouths. Personally, I can't tell you how grateful I am for the Bible. Without it, we'd have only our speculations about who God might be. We'd be lost in our own fallen, limited ideas and subjective preferences. The beauty of the Bible is this. Instead of letting us flail about in a dark, never uh, truly coming to know him, God revealed everything we need to know about himself, and he gave us an objective standard, a foundation on which we can stand with absolute and complete confidence. But his revealing himself isn't enough to benefit our faith, practice, and fellowship with him. We must also believe and trust that the Bible is God's word, period. And we must willingly submit to it, conforming our beliefs to its own. You don't have a choice as a believer or a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. If you have a belief that differs from a clearly taught belief in scripture, change your belief. You can't change the scripture to match your lifestyle. It doesn't work that way. That's not how laws work, or not laws, but you know what I'm saying, an authoritative standard. Many Christians have decided the Bible is not God's perfect word and are that interpretations of it are unreliable. Wanting to know God yet without a standard, they reason from their own experiences of life or their understanding of love and goodness or personal revelations to reach the conclusions on which they'll base their life and worship. That's scary, right? If you're just basing your view of God or how you should live your life in service to Him or worship to Him based on your own life experiences, I talk about a moving standard. That is not a standard at all. That's measuring with a rubber ruler at its finest. See, these two paths lead to completely different destinations. We all have to stake our spiritual lives on well, one or the other. You know, is the Bible the authoritative, inspired word of the living God, or isn't it? Or is just simply your experiences or, or your life beliefs what's authoritative? You know, you guys have heard me quote C.S. Lewis at this point. I love it, and I'm being recorded, so I'm going to say it exactly as Lewis said it, to hell with your feelings, Right? because they don't matter at that point. They absolutely don't, because they're, one thing we do know about our feelings is that they're gonna lead us astray. How many times do we hear about the heart being a, a good thing in scriptures? Jeremiah 2, the heart is desperately deceitful and wicked above all things, who can know it? How about Romans 1, does it have good things to say about our heart? No, not at all. Okay, so here's point number one. Um, the first person I'm gonna call out by name a progressive Christian writer. Um, he wrote a book titled Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, and his name is Brian Zand. So obviously you can tell by the title, this is in direct contradiction to Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, okay? So <laughs> let me be, ah, heck with it, I'm not going to be gentle. I was, I was going to be gentle about my view on this book. This book is no better than bound toilet paper. That's about the best use for it. I'm not kidding. I wasted my time reading this book uh, when I was a student in college. And don't waste yours. Let me give you some synopsis. Zand made his case for rejecting the idea of God's wrath and retribution against sin. 
There's a multitude of instances where the Bible contradicted his theological assertions plainly and interpretations of Scripture plainly until it becomes clear that pointing out missed verses and hermeneutical missteps is not going to make a difference to this guy because he's not using Scripture as his authority, right? He's using his own ideas and life experiences. Like arguing with any progressive, he had rejected the Bible as the final authority, saying that giving it that kind of authority would be, quote, an act of idolatry. Yes, he says giving the scriptures ultimate authority is an act of idolatry in his book. Let me read you the quote. If we want to make the Bible our final authority, which is an act of idolatry, we are conveniently ignoring the problem that we can make the Bible say just about whatever we want. Isn't that completely backwards? Yeah. Not even remotely. No, it doesn't. But it, it, it feels good. It has all the touchy feelies and the, you know, hey, God is a God of love. And he is. However, we need to be true he's to the. He's a just God. We need to be true to the entire scriptures. So clearly, Zan at this point was measuring his theology by a completely different standard than I do, making it impossible for either of us to correct each other. Well, in this case, if I ever agreed with him, then we would both be wrong. Mm -hmm. become a church as yes. one, or do they infiltrate other churches? So they infiltrate other churches, and they turn what once were sound churches into this. And it kind of happens slowly, right, until finally it implodes on itself. Mars Hill was one of those. Mars Hill was a solid Bible-teaching church, and it was slowly, slowly infiltrated by this progressive Christianity movement until, well, thankfully it is no longer. It has dissolved, but it had a serious impact on the people up north. Well, it's just broken up, actually, into other sects. Oh, great. So it's, you know, permeating further. Okay. What's Mars Hill? Mars Hill was a church up in Seattle. Mm -hmm. um, it was a megachurch. It was a mega church. It was a huge church, kind of like uh, Saddleback kind of size, you know, 10, 15,000 congregants. Huge, huge place. And towards the end of it, um, they would have some crazy stuff. Like, they would have kegers for Jesus. Seriously. Microbrews and you. I think, I think that's what it was. I think that's what it's called, microbrews and you, you know. And, and you're looking at that, you're like, that is insane. I mean... <laughs> like, why, why would you end up even doing anything remotely like that? So they, they definitely went off the, the deep end. But like with Brian Zand here, by what standard could he possibly use at this point? See, here's another quote from him. But it wasn't primarily reading theologians like Hans Urs, von Balthasar, Henry Neuven, and Stanley Herwas that led me away from an angry God theology. It was mostly mystical experiences in prayer. Oh, there it is. As I learned, oh yeah, as I learned to directly experience the presence of God in contemplative prayer or sitting with Jesus as I described it, I have come to know God as love and light. I have seen the face of God in Jesus. John, who lived so much longer than all the other apostles and seemed to have climbed higher than them all, says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. There was a time when I thought the darkness of anger, violence, and retribution cast a sinister shadow upon the face of God. But having learned to sit with Jesus in contemplative prayer, I have discovered my own experience that what John said is true. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. 
God is the eternal light of self-giving love. There is no darkness, no anger, no violence, no retribution, only love. One day, as I was sitting silently in contemplative prayer, I whispered this to the one who was there. Father, I don't believe you torture people for eternity. And then I began to laugh, and the one who was there laughed too. I don't doubt that someone was there with him. I do doubt that it was the Spirit of God that was there with him and laughing. Absolutely. See, this stuff, I believe, is exponentially more dangerous than a a plain-as-day cult as Jehovah Witnesses or Mormons. I mean, you can instantly recognize, yeah, you guys are way off. Uh, it's, It's as clear as day. But this stuff, right, I mean, it just starts to creep in with various ideals, such as how could a loving God send people to hell for all eternity? What was the first lie that Satan ever said? Yeah, did God really say that? Well, is the scripture the actual inspired, inerrant word of God? See, this is the stuff that starts to creep in, and it absolutely wreaks havoc. See, unfortunately, it's much easier to make your contemplative vision say whatever you want than it is to make the objective and public words of the Bible say whatever you want. Yeah, exactly. You can say, I had a vision, or thus saith the Lord, and then, you know, who's to say that, that you were wrong? Case in point today, uh, when we take a look at this, of, of just how per- pervasive this ideology is in our culture, um, my wife and I uh, were watching last night um, CSI New York. Cool show, right? We're into those, those true crime kind of deals. So this particular episode was filmed right around 2006. And in this episode, um, there was these group of men that would pretend that they were amputees. They would actually bind their legs up and, and walk around like this because they wanted to be an amputee. They felt that as if their right leg, left leg, whatever, enter appendage here, was oppressing them. And if they were able to remove it, then they would be free, okay? Now, what's important in 2006 is the characters, the, the, the main, what, when was it? 2004. Okay, 2004. So the, the main characters, the detectives and whatnot at this show, have, have a right response to dealing with these people. These people are sick. You are mentally diseased. You are extremely ill, and you need help. Here's the kicker. These people were identifying as something they are not, right? They identified as an amputee, and they still have full use of all their appendages. The mere fact that they were identifying as something that they are not, just as short ago as 2004... Our culture called them diseased, sick, and they needed mental help. Today, you can have a 55, 62-year-old man identify as a four-year-old boy or girl, and we don't call it diseased or sick or deranged. We call it truth. Their truth. Their truth. What has happened in our culture from 2004 to 2022? It's not that long ago. This isn't, we're not, exactly. We're not talking about, you know, from the 1940s to 2022. This is within a generation here. Something has seriously happened and it is this pervasive ideology that your visions, your experiences hold the utmost weight out of anything else there can be on this planet and it's wrong. It absolutely is. This is exactly what Zand and others do. He begins not with the Bible, but with what he calls, quote, the living Christ who is not the Jesus depicted of the Bible, for Zan ignores or rejects most of Jesus' words in the New Testament, but rather his idea of who Jesus is, which he developed by 
directly experiencing the presence of God in contemplative prayer, whatever in the world that is supposed to mean. So I think that's an important thing to hit on because it's disguised as something meditative. You know, it's said right. to meditate on God. But this is actually a chanting. This is actually, contemplative prayer is actually a mantra, they say, over and over, to usher in, to conjure up the right. Holy Spirit. Right. That's what they're talking about contemplative prayer being. And conjuring up their idea of what God should be, according to their eyes. I mean, how completely sick and twisted is that? But if you disguise it with verbiage that is used in the word, then people just dismiss it. I mean, they look over it. Oh, contemplative prayer. Yeah, we're supposed to be right. deep. Contemplative, contemplative prayer. We're supposed to always be in an attitude of prayer, right? I mean, the, these Christianese terms can that's lead to... That's accepted. Can, yes, and that's why it's accepted. Yeah, but Margaret. Isn't that very much like yoga? Yeah. Where a person does this humming and doing this other spirit type of thing that's right. like what you call mystical. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's common to the church. other spirits. Yeah. You know, it, it is very much, yoga is that sort of a thing. I don't mean to zoom in on yoga, but it's, it's very much that thing, contemplative, mm -hmm. calling on spirits that are not of God. Right. To cause them, where this, this thing with the leg it's very much believing it. It's crazy. Making it real. Crazy. Yeah. It makes it real to that person. I, I, it is. And, and Satan gets hold. It's I know. surprising how many churches accept it. It is. Because, well, why do they accept it? Because at the mere fact that you don't want to offend anyone. How many times do we read the gospel is offensive? It should be. Right. I mean, you shouldn't be just going with the flow, right? So his Jesus, Brian Zons, who instructs him that God does not express wrath against sin, is untethered from objective biblical revelation. It's not the Christ of the Bible at all. And this foundational error has a snowball effect on Zons' theology, if you want to even call it theology. Here's what I mean. And here's how dangerous something like that can lead to. So if God's justice, right, does not express wrath against sin, then the cross, therefore, can't be payment for sin, right? Follow me which then leads to speculation about what the cross is even about, right? What's the point? If, if, let me rephrase that again. If God's justice does not express wrath against sin, then that means Jesus' atonement can't fix it. Right. And it is the, the utmost false gospel that I believe you can be preaching. I mean, what is the point? What would be the point? If God has no wrath against sin, what would be the point of him coming to the world to die? There is none at all. It's the most pointless death in human history. So this requires a redefinition of what it means to be saved, right? Then how then are you saved and what are you saved from? See, ending in repeated statements of legalism, possibly, with no gospel in sight, merely unyielding, condemning consequences of our sin, unless we're good enough somehow, to change the sinful power structure of our society, it's bleak. It's a very, very dark outcome. I, I quoted a TV show, now it's time to quote a movie. <laughs> Do you guys remember the, the first Aliens movie um, with Bill Paxton? Okay, so there's this scene, and I always laugh when I see it because I love his reaction, and it reminds me of the bleakness that someone would face with this type of worldview. So they're about ready to get rescued, 
the rescue ship comes into the planet and it crashes and explodes in this fiery ball, right? That was like basically their only hope to get off of the planet and get rid, rid of these, these aliens. And then Bill Paxton's response is just classic. He just says, well, that's just great, man. That's just freaking great. What are we supposed to do now, man? We're screwed. Game over. Right? And that's, that's the point. Because when you look at his bleakness, and I translate it to this too, because there would be absolutely no hope. Game over. There's nothing you can do. There is no rescue. There's no atonement. You're just stuck in this awful world, left to die, with no hope of anything to look forward to. You're, everything is meaningless. I mean, this is beyond Solomon's despair of vanity of vanities, be, way beyond that, right? So how do they interpret the scriptures? Well, they look at what Paul or James wrote and come to the conclusion, well, that gives us a great picture of what they believe God to be like, given their time and place in history. Yet we have come to, as what Brian McLaren says, he's another progressive Christian, a higher and wiser view of God now. See, we're getting, we're getting much more advanced and intellectual. We're evolving, right? Stronger, better, faster, smarter, taller. See, a progressive Christian would have zero problem disagreeing with something that Paul wrote. What? How do you have zero problem disagreeing with something that the Apostle Paul wrote? In fact, they don't like Paul much at all. Literally, they have no problem saying, well, I don't really agree with what Paul wrote in Romans, or seriously, he's a fallible man. Yeah. For those listening, no, I'm not saying Paul is a fallible man online. I mean, that is what progressive Christians say. See, given what we've studied about basic cult MOs, modus operandi, does this sound familiar? Getting people to have a distrust of the Bible? It's the very first point. Very, very first. See, we, we want to take away an objective standard by which you measure your lives. And conveniently, we want to give you the standard that I tell you is true. That's scary. So what's the the second sign of progressive Christianity? We have feelings are emphasized over facts. Bar none. In progressive churches, personal experiences, feelings, and opinions tend to be valued over objective truth. So in this case, as the Bible ceases to be viewed as God's definitive word, what a person feels to be true becomes the ultimate authority for faith and practice. So comments you might hear, that Bible verse doesn't resonate with me. I don't care. That's what it says. It is the absolute standard whether or not you agree with it or not. You don't have a choice in the matter of the interpretation. I thought homosexuality was a sin until I met and befriended some gay people. There are wonderful, awesome gay people in the world. There are, well, I'm going to phrase this carefully. There are wonderful, awesome, sexually deviant people in the world. There are wonderful, awesome drug addicts in the world. There are one, you get where I'm going. Sin is sin, folks. It doesn't matter. As James said, you have broken one point in the law. You are guilty of all of it. Where be salvation? What is the good thing in, in there? I don't know. I really don't know because... love and he wills for all of us to come to him. Right, so it just becomes universalism at that point. Basically, everyone's going to heaven. You don't have to do anything to get to heaven. Not really. Yep, free for all. Well, it's going to be one or two spectrums, right? It's either going to be the the far, far left of of that, right, where just do whatever, or it's going to be far, far right, where it's going to be extreme legalism. Well, you have to do exactly what I say, da-da-da-da-da, right, in order to get to heaven. Keeping the law, whatever, what have you. 
but bo both sides of the same coin and equally as dangerous. My favorite. No, what they will say and what they ha I have heard them say is that just be a good person. Right. Believe in God is enough and be a good person. Let me let me touch on that. Believe a good person. Huh? So Yeah, define good. There is Thank you. Good. No, not So my grandmother used to give me that argument when I would try to share Christ with her. I'm a good person. That's nice, Grandma, according to whose standards? Yours? That's rather convenient. Don't you think God, the owner and maker of heaven, has something to say about who gets into his heaven? Do not I, the owner of my house, have something to say who can come into my house? It's a much lesser degree, don't you think? It's rather convenient. Or, I just can't believe Jesus would send good people to hell. Good? Christ even said, why do you call me good when people called him good teacher? No one is good save God alone. But of course, Christ isn't denying his goodness. He's proving his deity. Okay, we, we understand that, right? Okay, everyone here is orthodox. Yay. <laughs> okay. But the point being, how can you call something good based on your standards? It doesn't work that way. The third sign, essential Christian doctrines are absolutely open for reinterpretation. In, in the progressive Christianity movement. So here's another one. Progressive author, John Pavlitz, he wrote this. There are no sacred cows in progressive Christianity. Tradition, dogma, and doctrines are all fair game because all pass through the hands of flawed humanity. Progressive Christians are often open to redefining and reinterpreting the Bible on hot-button moral issues like homosexuality and abortion. And also cardinal doctrines, such as the virgin conception and the bodily res resurrection of Jesus. The only sacred cow is there are no sacred cows. How does that even work, right? How, uh, just follow the logic or lack thereof in that statement. How do you have anything at all? I think you guys remember way on, uh, like last year, when we were going over just the intro to apologetics, why is there anything rather than nothing? With that type of logic, with no absolute standard, it's welcome to interpretation as you see fit or as it bothers you. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why do you even have a society? Why do you even have morals that most people adhere to? Why do you just not walk down the street and shoot people at random because you don't like the way their shoes look? That ideology would lead to that type of society. It's absolute, utter chaos. So these are some of the comments you might hear from that. The resurrection of Jesus doesn't have to be factual to speak truth. What? <laughs> you just said facts and truth are two different things? No, they're not. They, they, they absolutely are one and the same. Truth is not fluid, as some folks would like to lead us to believe. Truth is an absolute thing. Regardless if you believe it or not, it is still true. You can believe 2 plus 2 equals 12. I don't care. It still equals 4. You can believe it with all your might, you're wrong, right? The church's historic position on sexuality is archaic and needs to be updated with a modern framework. You'll hear this one a lot. That's their goal. Yeah, that is the absolute goal, is the breakdown of any type of morality or any type of standard. If they remove God and Christ, they can sin up a storm because there's no end Right. And again, what's the point? There isn't any point to what they are preaching. Then why even bother with religion at all? Exactly. Because it, it feels good. Yep. But if they, they would say I went to church. Church. Right. And it feels good, even though it's 
I don't know what it is that you're feeling or what it is that you're accomplishing, but yeah, somehow it feels good. The idea of a literal hell is offensive to non-Christians and needs to be reinterpreted. I'm sorry, no it doesn't. That is what the non-believer faces. Period. That is a fact. I mean, what else are we being saved from if there isn't a literal hell? Why did God have to come and die if there isn't a literal hell? Historical terms, of course, are redefined. This is the fourth evidence or sign of progressive Christianity. There are some progressive Christians who say that they affirm doctrines like biblical inspiration, inerrancy, and authority, but then they have to do linguistic gymnastics to make those words mean what they want them to mean. I remember asking one of my professors at California Baptist University, do you believe the Bible is divinely inspired? This was my Old Testament theology professor and also my Hebrew professor. Wonderful man, such a kind man. And he answered confidently, yes, of course. Because the way some of the things he was teaching, I had my doubts that he believed that the Bible was divinely inspired. However, I mistakenly assumed that when using the word inspired, we both meant the same thing. We didn't. We are on vastly different definitions of that word. You guys understand my view of inspiration is the literal inspired word of God. He clarified it months later what he meant, that the Bible is inspired in the same way on the same level as many other Christian books, songs, and sermons. Inspired as in, it just came to me and it's a, a good thing, like as, you know, composing a great song. It was what? Right. It was an idea. See, this, of course, is not how Christians have historically understood the doctrine of divine inspiration. We don't understand it, and we don't agree with it as something that is just merely happens to be a good thing, such as a song or a poem is inspired. That's someone who's just, I was inspired to create this sculpture. No, that's not the same thing at all. They're very, very different meanings. Another word that tends to get a progressive Christian makeover is the word love, right? When plucked out of its biblical context, it becomes a catch-all term for everything non-confrontational, uh, everything pleasant, and everything affirming. That's how they define love. Love is never disagreeing with anyone. That's not actual love. That's placating, and sometimes it can do great damage. Ben said it this morning in the sermons. You can raise up a bratty child that has no respect of life or law property, anything. Comments you might hear on this one? God wouldn't punish sinners. He is love. Okay, quick quiz. Of all the topics that Christ preached on while he was here on earth in his ministry for 33 years, which topic did he preach more on? Was it love or was it the wrath of God? It was the wrath of God by almost double than he preached on love. That's interesting. Sure, the Bible is authoritative. Here's another one you'll hear but we've misunderstood it for the first 2,000 years of church history, <laughs> right? We're getting better. We're getting more enlightened. We're becoming more evolved. We're a better society. We can understand a lot more. The early church fathers were archaic and stupid. You ever read these guys? They are not stupid, okay? It takes every bit of mental capacity I have to wade through some of our church fathers. Yeah? Well, I think that love and... Love is, is confused with a feeling. It absolutely is. Correct. It is confused with a feeling. And that's, that's created such a travesty in our culture because when we've misused that word and redefined that word, like to say, I would love an In-N-Out cheeseburger. And then they use the same sentence, I love my wife. <laughs> I think, I believe it. He loves In-N-Out. <laughs> 
<laughs> but you see the point how that word is completely contaminated now in our culture because we've used it to define a feeling. And it's not that. Here's another one. It's not our job to talk to anyone about sin. It is our job just to love them. That is, that is the most unloving thing I think you can ever do to not talk to somebody about their sin. I've used this example before. I'll pull it up again. Um, Mr. Truman, who lived on top of Mount St. Helens, well, not quite on top of, but pretty much hash, halfway up the mountain. So the geologists were, were measuring all these seismic spikes, and they told him, Mr. Truman, you, you got to leave. This thing's getting ready to go, and it's, it's going to be big. So you should leave. Ah, no. I've been on this mountain my whole life. She rumbles. I know this mountain. Well, May 18th, 1980, we all remember, if we were around, what happened on that day. Mount St. Helens erupted. The volcanic ash circled the world twice. It was an enormous explosion. Here's the thing. If, would you say that the geologist telling and warning Mr. Truman about the impending doom was an act of love? Yes. I would too. I would absolutely say them warning him of the impending destruction coming to him was an act of love. If they simply had said, eh, and didn't even warn him at all, I don't think that's love even remotely, not even close. I'm reminded by uh, my very first night at California Baptist University, and there was a, a hall Bible study on my hall that I lived in, and my resident advisor was leading it. And he asked us a simple question that night, why should you witness to somebody? Never forget the young man's response in the corner. Simple but profound, because it's jacked up not to. <laughs> what was his point? We have an impending doom, we have a danger, and it's the utmost love to warn somebody of danger. If you see a danger coming and you don't warn somebody of it, what kind of person are you? How can you define that as love? I define that as grossly negligent. As a matter of fact, so does the law, right? So here's the fifth sign. The heart of the gospel message shifts from sin and redemption into social justice. That is now the new gospel under progressive Christianity. So there's no doubt that the Bible commands us to take care of the unfortunate and defend those who are oppressed. Yes, we have those in Scripture. This is a very real and profoundly important part of what it means to live out our Christian faith. I'm not denying that. However, the core message of Christianity, the gospel, is that Jesus died for our sins. He was buried and resurrected and thereby reconciled us to God and we must repent and turn to Christ. That is the gospel. See, taking care of those poor and unfortunate are evidences of those who are saved by the gospel. But that in and of itself will not save you or enter you into the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't work that way. This is the message that will truly bring freedom to the oppressed. Could you state that one again? It's just from sin? What's that? Oh, yeah. Um, so the heart of the gospel message shifts from sin and redemption to social justice. So many progressive Christians today find the concept of God willing his son to die on the cross to be embarrassing or even appalling. I've seen it written before, sometimes referred to as, quote, cosmic child abuse. Yeah, <laughs> literally seen that. The idea of a blood atonement is completely de-emphasized or denied altogether with social justice and good works enthroned in its place. So comments you might hear on this tenet. Sin does not separate us from God. We are made in his image and he called us good. They completely ignored. It's like Genesis chapter 3 to Revelation 22 and everything in between. Totally ignored it. 
right? I mean, you, you, I don't know how you can even come to that conclusion apart from Brian Zahn's contemplative prayer and you just have what's convenient for you. Another, God didn't actually require a sacrifice for our sins. <laughs> okay, the first Christians picked up the pagan practice of animal sacrifice and told the Jesus story in similar terms. This is being preached from pulpits. No. Isn't this crazy, Bonnie? The other, we don't really need to preach the gospel. We just need to show love by bringing justice to the oppressed and provision to the needy. Good-meaning Christians have quoted old adages, and it's turned into this. What old adage am I referring to? Preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. (laughs) It's a good thing to do. You must live out your life as if you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, right? However, you must use words. It's not your lifestyle that is going to save somebody. It is the actual gospel of the risen Christ and the repentance of them turning from their life of sin and embracing the gospel of Christ. Isn't this so much what, what's his name's whole thing is? Um, Joel Osteen? Uh, no, the guy that... I'm going to name them all right <laughs> <laughs> All the churches were doing it, and he sold tons of books, and he's got the big saddleback. Oh, Rick Warren. Rick Warren. Yes. I mean, to some of they had the groups and you're supposed to make sure you had a community thing and, it and all you're supposed to do all these communities yeah outreach. you gotta go and, mm-hmm. and they weren't even the bible wasn't even being taught anymore no you had to have your group and what's your group doing in the community and we got to talk about your community group and i thought well what happened to bible study right you're not doing the bible studies anymore you don't even talk about the, the, the scriptures nothing about just the what you are doing smile big and to go out in the community you know, and you're, you're talking about this do good for your neighborhood, you know? Right. That's exactly what that was. That, it, that, is, that is exactly what it was. Well, as John MacArthur says, if you're not preaching the gospel, that's hate speech. Yes, it is. If you're not saying, listen, the reason, the hope that is within me is because of my faith unto salvation... If you're not telling that to all who ask what the hope was in, well, I, I go to church, you know, and not what I asked. preaches wonderful sermons, you know, if you're not saying, well, I was fucked out of the fires of hell, and let me tell you how you can be too. If you're not doing that, it's hate speech. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, like, Richard Dawkins was quoted, it's like, if you really believe that, like if you really believe the gospel, then how much do you have to hate someone to not tell them? Mm-hmm. Dog is an right. Yeah. Evolutionary biologist. Yeah. 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 And you're and you're right about that quote. Yes, yeah. Dawkins did say yeah, it's that. Really it is. It, it is. An atheist, an evolutionary biologist, end up saying that. And for those that couldn't hear and listening online, Richard Dawkins, an evolutionary biologist, said, if you truly believe the gospel and you don't tell them about it, how much must you hate people to not tell them about the gospel? An atheistic evolutionary biologist, folks, had said that. See, identifying the signs is not always so obvious. Sometimes they're sneaky. They're subtle and mixed with a lot of truth. Let me give some examples of this. Subtle and mixed with a lot of truth. Um, I can't find it anymore. I don't even know if they sell it. But do you guys remember decon, uh, mouse poisoning? Did you guys ever look at the contents of decon? It's like 99.98% good food. It has one one hundredth of a percent of poison in it. Very small trace amounts. See, it's just a, a, just a little bit 
of poison is what ends up killing the critter, not the good food. And um, a friend of mine, another evangelist, tells this story, and I love it, about how a, a little lie can mess up, and you guys, some of you have heard this story, some of you have not, so I'll retell it, can mess up a very good thing. So he grew up with uh, four older brothers. He was the baby. And of course, as you know, if any of you have been the baby in the family, um, you just get pounded on by your siblings, right? There's, there's really no getting, getting one over on your siblings if you're the older one. So one morning he runs down to breakfast. There's one banana left. and He grabbed it. He was so happy he gets the last banana for his cereal, the slice on his cereal. So his older brothers come down and say, hey, Kent, is that the last banana? Yeah. And I got it, thinking he finally pulled one over on his bigger brothers. And they say, hey, Kent, do you know how bananas are made? I think he was about eight or nine at this point. Uh, I said, why, why no? No, I don't know how they're made. And they said, well, deep down in the jungles of South America, when a spider dies, its legs fold up in the tree, and the mold grows over the spider legs, and it forms a banana. As a matter of fact, Kent, if you slice that banana in half, you can see those four black dots where the spider legs used to be. <laughs> he didn't eat bananas for like 12 years after that. <laughs> but the point is, it's a little tiny, tiny lie mixed when, with great truths can have voracious consequences, right? Did God really say? Yeah, exactly. So who are its champions, and, and where did this explosion come from of this progressive Christianity? Well, one of the most powerful proponents, the most recent, actually, was a woman named Rachel Held Evans. Anyone hear that name? Okay. Yeah, this is, this is a, there's a couple that she wrote, and this is a pretty sad story, but Rachel Held Evans was an American Christian columnist and blogger and author. Her book, A Year of Biblical Womanhood, was a New York Times bestseller, an e-book Nonfiction, another one called Searching for Sunday, was a New York Times bestseller. I was in paperback. So she contracted the flu, I believe, in 2019, and she developed some horrific reaction to the medication given to her and ended up dying at the age of 37. Very young, very young. But this, of course, really propelled her work, her untimely death. Uh, it, it, it just catapulted her to stardom at this point. Folks who had never heard of progressive Christianity who definitely were now introduced. Uh, her death was talked about so much, it even trended on Twitter. Others uh, along the same line, there's a fellow named Rob Bell and Brian McLaren. There's also a scholar from Harvard named Pete Enns. So this isn't, you know, ignorant people teaching these things, right? Another name for this that we may have heard instead of progressive Christianity would be liberal Christianity. We may have heard that term as well. So the reason why I talk about signs of progressive Christianity instead of beliefs is because true to all liberalism, it's a moving target. You can only recognize signs. Progressive Christians are not uniting to a creed or to a doctrine. They're far too advanced for that, right? You might have a progressive Christian deny the resurrection, and another one sits right next to them that affirms it, but they're fine in being fellowship with each other. Why is that? Because it's not about what you believe, you see. It's about what you are doing, your good works, your social justice, as Margaret brought up. That's what it's about in progressive Christianity or liberal Christianity. Not what you believe, what you are doing, regardless of what you believe. Scary stuff, right? And this is the things that we're combating today in our churches. You know, the Apostle John says, they came out from you, but they were not of you, right? This isn't an outside influence coming in, folks. It's not someone walking in the doors and just openly preaching a heresy, which we can recognize and 
escort them on their way. These are folks within our own churches that are being led astray by this stuff. I mean, how popular are self-help books? I think the last time I went to a Barnes and Noble, I mean, like the, the math section, if you go to, yes, I'm a nerd, okay? If you go to look at the math books, it was like maybe a quarter of an aisle, and the self-help section was like the entire back wall, <laughs> you know? I, I mean, it, it's so prevalent and so um, just invasive. But this is what we're combating. So that's the point of, of this talk. Number one, uh, this week was to at least introduce you guys to it so you know and you can recognize when you start to see those signs of it that something's really not right here. And then next week we'll dive deeper into um, some of the folks that have not come out and labeled themselves as progressive Christians. And they won't. And they won't probably. Um, but when you take a look at their writings or some of the comments, you, ah, there it is. You guys have heard the, the, um, the analogy of how a bank teller recognizes fraudulent bills, right? It's because they deal with the real thing every day. And then when a counterfeit comes across their hands, oh, they know it instantly. It's the same kind of thing. And this is meant to encourage all of us to study your, your scriptures, study the word. You're not going to know these things right off the bat because these folks are extremely, extremely sneaky. Remember those moldy spider legs? It's kind of like that. So any questions? I've been yapping for about an hour now, I think. Yeah. they're in church rather than on the street doing drugs but did it affect a change I don't know. or the correct change rather 
right? I mean, because because it's 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 not it's even more destructive to be um, subject to a false gospel to even no gospel at all. Why do I make that statement? Because to a false gospel, you know, well, now you have two stumbling blocks. You have to unlearn that one and then relearn the correct one, right? Well, if, if you legitimately believe that, you might go lead other people astray. Even, correct. Even if it potentially did have some benefits for the individual, it could have catastrophic effects on anybody that they... Yep. And, and we are reaping the benefits of that absolutely right now. I mean, how now, right now, we see uh, a little girl growing up as a tomboy. Maybe she likes to play football or, or shoot BB guns. What is the world telling her? You're, you're transgender. You're not actually a girl. You're identifying as a boy. No, 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 she's just a tomboy, like my wife's youngest sister. But she's every bit of a girl. She's married with three girls. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, we are absolutely reaping the catastrophic, um, I'm not going to say benefits, but it's the only word that comes to mind of that. Results, thanks. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's horrible. Yeah. I, I was listening because we get his channel. Mm-hmm. And I, I forget what the program I was listening to, but they were talking about the woke churches and stuff like that. And he named some names. And then he said, and the pastor of uh, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. Okay. Uh huh. Or the new one, no, Brian. I'm sure he was talking about Brian. Okay. Yeah. But I just thought it was interesting that he named names until it got to Brian. And he just said the pastor of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. <laughs> because he was like, they, they were Calvary Chapel pastors that were talking. Mm hmm. And then he said that, and I was like, oh, I know what he's talking about. Did he say what, what? It, I don't remember, was, but it well, was like, it was just talking about wokeness and what's coming into the church and some of the false doctrine and stuff. Hmm. Is that, he, he named Anthony Stanley. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and some others, and then, like I said, when he yeah. got to the Calvary when he got to Bodison, he didn't name them. <laughs> See, I mean, if, if you notice a theme with all these folks um, that the progressive Christians are flocking to or attacking to, the, the major theme is that they're not going to, um, you know, say anything that's going to rub you the wrong way or ruffle your feathers or, or encourage you to change your life. Any of those pastors, well, that's the, you know, fire and brimstone guys, right? We don't, we don't need that anymore in today's culture. We, we need acceptance. We need tolerance. We need feel good. Feel good. Yeah. And it's just an absolute, absolute travesty what it is doing uh, to our young people and even to our older generations. Well, because young people are based on emotions. They do everything based on emotions. Right. Their brains aren't even fully developed to make rational decisions, you know. And, and so then you're inundating them with this feel-good stuff or these emotional religious experiences, and they think that's only where the Holy Spirit is. That's how I was brought up in right. the Pentecostal church. And if you didn't feel the Holy Spirit, if you didn't speak in tongues and be slain in the Spirit, then you weren't filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, and they're introducing this at a very young age to teenagers. Well, we're going to vacillate in and out of those feelings our entire life. Does that mean the Lord isn't with us right. at any given? No, it doesn't. It means that was a religious experience. Yeah. It was an emotional experience. We were emoting. It doesn't mean that that was the Holy Spirit. And, and so that is kind of a 
creates a crisis of faith. Oh yeah, and to target those young people is very, very purposeful. You know, extremely purposeful. Uh, Winston Churchill once said, if you're not a liberal when you're 25, then you have no heart. If you're not a conservative by the time you're 45, then you have no brain. <laughs> well, yeah, it, as a, a growing up 60 years ago yeah. in a church that thought that the Bible and Aesop's fables were kind of synonymous. No kidding. Yeah, I mean, like... Wow. You know, my dad specifically, you think that Jonah was swallowed by a whale? No, that's just a good story to live by, yeah. but, oh, like you know, a yeah, like a yeah, fable. Exactly, exactly. And and so when I got to college, I said, and, and I would see something that didn't, and when I got to college, I said, this is trash. I mean, you know, like... You know, when everybody is is going to church, is at our house drunk on their fannies Saturday night and going to church on Sunday, it's like, as a teenager, I went like, this doesn't match. <laughs> yeah. And so I threw the whole thing out. Right. Mm -hmm. As most people do. Because you're thinking all of it is a crock and, and nothing matters. Yeah. yeah 100%. Well, let's... But thank God I have people praying for me. Amen to that. Yeah. Well, let's close in a word of prayer, shall we? And then we'll end this week. Father, again, we, we thank you so much for your truth, um, that it has been revealed to us and it can be understood. We just pray that uh, you would continue to give us those opportunities to share your truth and, and that we would do it seasoned with grace and love, Lord. It, it just wouldn't be an argument for us, but we would understand the real purpose of it. And God, we, we love you so much and just uh, please ask that you would protect us and bless our conversations as we go about our week. In Christ's name I pray, amen.